0: Hey baby, wake up from your sleep. We have arrived onto the future, and the whole world is become. Electronic, supersonic, supersonic.
1: Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Page to Pixel podcast. I'm your host, Reed Jolin. Uh, joined with me, as always, is my dear friend, Jeremy Ruck. All the way up north, say something, Jeremy.
0: Hey, how's it going, Reed? Oh,
1: not too bad. Just enjoying the nice weather, even though it's starting to become fall. It's still in the 70s and 80s down here. Welcome to the new weather podcast. We have switched away from video games, and we are now covering the weather.
0: Yeah, I tell you, them storms we've had recently... Whoa, let boy!
1: Me, let me tell you something about them storms.
0: It was weather.
1: It was weather. Speaking about weather, which is related to planets, today our episode is on the video game that may, some of you may have been playing over the last few years. It is The Outer Worlds, which is a game that I keep confusing with Outer Wilds. So even up until today, when we started uh, prepping for the recording of this podcast... I was still referring to the game as outer wild so i'm looking at pictures i'm looking at references to this game and i kept getting confused and having to ask jeremy if i'm doing the actual right game so that just kind of tells you how uh, productive and professional this podcast truly is
0: some real amateur work great job
1: i know but as always with our podcast our goal here is to break down a franchise relating its characters plot theme inspiration and if we do get time of course looking at the world so the environments that are involved with every video game that we talk about um what's unique about this one and maybe easy on our part is the fact that this game is a one-off currently uh recently i want to say just a few months ago um in june i want to say they announced that they're making an outer worlds 2 so as it stands as of this recording outer worlds is the current and only game um, in the franchise. But I know it is something that is very important to Jeremy. I know it was something that you really dug yourself into. So this, ladies and gentlemen, is definitely a podcast I'm gonna be leaning more into Jeremy on. So Jeremy, why don't you just kind of introduce us to your experience and why you wanted to cover this uh, this game in a episode?
0: Well, uh, the reason I wanted to cover this game in particular was I've always been into a lot of the fantasy, not fantasy, sci-fi shows. Um, Your Firefly, Star Trek, Farscape, just anything like that. Uh, We've got this cool little crew that hangs out and runs on little adventures through the universe. And that's really why I wanted to talk about this. There's a bunch of other really deep kind of political things going on in this game that I think are really interesting and cool. But... I really enjoyed that kind of close connection that you got to make with your crew in this game and kind of help them develop as characters and you see them grow and kind of go on to better things depending on, you know, your, your choices and what you do in this game. Uh, So that's kind of what I wanted to focus on for a little sub part of this. The other thing I wanted to mention is this is a a game that has a lot of different endings and your actions make a huge impact on what's going on. So if you've played this game and some things just aren't lining up to your experience, if you've maybe only played it once, uh, we're not going to hit every nook and cranny of this English muffin. So we're just going to kind of glide over the core of what's going on. Uh, I'm going to assume the altruistic path where we're doing the thing, doing things to help the most people. So there are definitely kind of some darker roads you can take that are less optimistic, but the approach for this particular run through of what we're talking about is going to be trying to help the most people put the most good into the world, just because I think with this game in particular, the outcomes are more interesting than just becoming a corporate overlord, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is something I played just briefly. I, I didn't get too. I didn't get too far into it. I remember doing the mission where you have to go to the power plant and you have to, like steal the battery or whatever, and um, decide what you want to do with it. Um, I know it's made by Obsidian, who's really well renowned for their RPGs, uh, like Pillars of Eternity. I think it's called uh, Kotor Two. Yes. Uh, Baldur's Gate 2, I want to say something like that. One of those two, um, they just—they're just well known for their RPGs. They did Fallout New Vegas, so a lot of people, I would say, especially people probably around our age in our thirties, more so than younger kids, um, it's a really popular, well, well revered for the most part, uh, gaming developer, and a lot of people were really excited to see Outer Worlds come out because it was a new IP um, from Obsidian that combined this really interesting sci-fi landscape and environment with this sort of alternative history of mankind and we'll dive a little bit into this I think my general impressions of it were pretty positive I think it reviewed pretty well I know it's not I, I, I know a lot of people wouldn't probably put it as like the best game out of the last five years but it's definitely up there for some people and I know it's certainly something that they're going to be building off of once they move into the next game. It'll be interesting to see whether or not it's a continuation of the story directly. I don't know. Or if it's going to be a separate thing altogether. But it will be exciting to see what they do um, moving forward with the franchise.
0: Uh, Yeah, I don't know either if they're going to continue off of it. But I know they put a lot of work and love into it. Um, So this game was created by, I'm not sure if I mentioned this already, but the original creators of uh, Fallout. So Leonard Boyarsky and Tim uh, Tim Kane, they kind of separated, I believe that was interplay that made that original fallout. So they worked really closely together on that game and they kind of went their their separate ways for a little bit, um, developing games. and then at some point they came back together,, when I believe Tim, I believe it was Tim Kane who went back to work for Obsidian. And they kind of put this game on his plate. And he actually roped Leonard Boyarski back into it. And the two really play off of each other really well. Um, One of them has a little darker sense of humor uh, where the other is kind of more jovial and maybe a little bit more slapstick. And I think that's what is kind of a good draw to this because I do like things that get kind of real and dark. But I also don't want to play a game where there's no hope. Or no point to keep going because the world is just that bad. So I think that those two different poles working together to put you somewhere in the middle where there are definitely stakes and the world needs to be improved, but there's still like a positive attitude, just a little like a reason to keep fighting.
1: For sure. Yeah, and you'd mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that there is this political undertone with this game. And like we had mentioned, I think in our first few episodes, we're not a political based podcast, but obviously when we're talking about certain franchises, stuff like that's going to come up. So if we're going to be talking about Bioshock or something like this, obviously a political conversation is going to kind of come into this. And like you said, I don't think this is going to be I don't think the game world is necessarily as dark as something as Bioshock, but it does have implications if you look for them. And I think the overall plot line of, you know, how the game s- lays out the plot um, is really, really interesting and very, very unique to the series. Uh, go ahead, Jeremy. I think
0: Yeah, I think maybe this might be a good time. Um, I know we've never really discussed this too much, but just gonna throw out kind of a bummer warning for this one because, depending on if you've got kids listening or anything like that. There's some grown up things going on in this game. Nothing too extreme, but just a general. Yeah, there's some pretty sad stuff going on here. So that's something to keep in mind when we're. Before we get too deep into the story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we usually don't cover gameplay mechanics and stuff like this, but Jeremy, can you kind of break down how this game kind of plays and what you might compare it to something else?
0: Uh, yeah, it plays pretty similar to your typical first person uh, shooter RPG i think something similar to fallout there's a leveling structure then you've got melee builds talking builds sneaky builds gun builds that sort of thing they kind of pulled a similar system in from fallout with the vats it's called uh, tactical time distortion i believe it essentially allows you to slow down time and then pick out certain points of your enemies and apply debuffs to them So there's still a little bit of that old school kind of Fallout influence leaking into the game. But still distinct in kind of the universe and general feel and tone where Fallout has some of that humor in it still. It's much more suppressed under what's going on. This one, the humor is a little bit more out there. The color palette's a little bit more vibrant and creative. So that's, I would say, the best comparison I could make to it.
1: So would you say... Fallout in space, would you say it's it's a... Because I have played a few Fallout games, and they do have a very dark sense of humor in a lot of those Fallout games. Um, you know, P- Fallout 3, Fallout 4, Fallout 76. There is a sense of humor in it, but it's usually pretty dark. Do you think this game has that same sense of humor, or is it a little bit lighter in its tone?
0: I would say it has a bit of that same sense of humor, but more kind of separated so instead of just dark jokes it's more a dark setting that has some sense of humor in it <clears throat> there's a little bit of slapstick in the i shouldn't say slapstick but just goofiness early on especially with the sort of driving i would say the catalyst to the story uh wells his character has a few moments where he's just kind of this eccentric scientist that's kind of led to be funny but I, I don't think there's necessarily as much staring into the abyss and laughing. Just kind of, the abyss is here, but this guy's telling a pretty sick joke.
1: For sure. All right, with that being said, I think it's probably uh, as good of a time as any to kind of jump into some of our page-to-pixel specifics, looking at the characters' plot and themes, uh, and also the inspiration for how the game was created. So, Jeremy, is there any particular direction you want to start us out in?
0: Well, I think we kind of talked about the inspiration. You know, like I said, it came from the minds of uh, the guys that made Fallout and actually a large part of the team. I was watching a documentary, and I think they were saying about 5% of the people that worked on Fallout and 30% that worked on New Vegas were working on this game. So a lot of that's drawn from there. I got huge hits from Firefly. I'm not sure if you've ever watched that show, Reed
1: i watched a bit of it. Yeah, I, I liked it when I was watching it. I know it's one of those shows that... Oh, oh I, I Die say, on the
0: Firefly Hill.
1: Oh, yeah. I, didn't I, it come I out? A... Was it like 2005 it came out? That's about right, yeah. Somewhere
0: in that general area.
1: I know it was hugely popular, and the only reason I know it is because of the movie Serenity, which I think flopped um, pretty hard, but I know that people are... If you say I mean, it, it, was made, a,
0: it was a movie made for people of a cult tv show you know so it was destined to kind of flop but
1: so so yeah it's it's i know firefly if i think
0: negatively of firefly i'm gonna
1: get a death threat um, <laughs> yeah
0: I, the, the first one from me
1: yeah exactly i know yeah I, ha- I have seen a few episodes of it and i really liked it because it is like it's cowboys in space it's kind of of the same vein in a way uh in a different dimension of cowboy bebop too um sure very which i've much, never seen so it's very much like following a crew through space and their own misadventures and their own relationship building and stuff like that.
0: Right. So that kind of leads directly into the setting of this game. So when we say cowboy in space, it's not too far off of that. The, the aesthetic is kind of westernish style, but more looking at instead of cowboys, I would say the industrial side of that. Uh, so you've got factories basically cities that are just built around a single factory. Uh, we can get a little deeper into kind of the background now.
1: Yeah, let's then, let's do that. So let's jump into the background and setting before we jump into the specific characters or the specific plot points that follow like you said the altruistic um, narrative that your character could follow what's the general background of this game?
0: All right. So like you mentioned earlier, it's an alternate timeline where the base, like the base variant comes from William McKinley not being assassinated, which means that President Theodore Roosevelt never became our president. And not sure how much you know about what's going on in history there. He just did a lot to fight for workers' rights and taking away kind of some of the power that massive corporations had over people in the industrial era. I'm not sure if you have anything to elaborate on on that, Reed. Uh
1: you, You're saying Teddy Roosevelt um, was fighting against major corporations. Yeah, yeah. I I am a history teacher when I'm not podcasting, and U.S. history is probably one of my weakest subjects. So yeah. Ch- so chances are, when you're doing you know Wikipedia research on this, I'm just like, uh huh, yeah, that's right. That sounds good. <laughs> I do know a little bit about the about the background of this time and how. Um, during the early 20th century, there was this huge rise in industrialism and there was a lot of companies really starting out. A lot of people getting really wealthy off of labor forces and people getting pretty upset about it, about their pay, about the working hours, about the working conditions. So Teddy Roosevelt coming in and kind of shaking things up and saying, you know, corporations need to be kind of put in check. And if you're living in an alternate timeline like this game sort of presents without that actually happening. It is kind of scary to think about what would happen. And I like that Outer Worlds takes that idea and kind of runs with it in a really large scope because my general understanding of the background, and I'm sure you're going to elaborate on it in a minute, is that eventually humans go to colonize space and they do so with the larger um, idea of colonizing and using the resources to their advantage.
0: Right. So it's essentially... It's colonized for corporate growth as opposed to scientific research or just general exploration. They're going into space to make that sweet, sweet money.
1: And I I don't know this, but is this something where these planets are within our solar system or are they outside the solar system?
0: No, uh, they are outside of our solar system. We'll get into that in just a minute. Okay. All right. So leading up to the space days. Uh, in the twenty-first century, there was a large war that broke out, and there's not a whole lot about what's going, like what happened. But I'm going to make a personal deduction based on the response to this. So after the war, there was the creation of the Earth uh, Directorate, and they're basically responsible for arbitrating between corporations. So I'm just going to extrapolate my personal knowledge of what kind of happened after we hit world war 1 world war 2 where we had the united nations and then whatever the one after world war 1 was read korea no after world war 1 the um spanish the, the the united nations of world war 1 um, uh, league of nations yes the league of nations thank you sorry my brain is dying uh so yeah those two organizations were trying to basically barter tweet peace between these nations, so I don't think it's too far of a stretch to assume that the Earth Directorate was made because the massive war was a war between corporations. So I'm just going to extrapolate um, just something based on what I know from history about the Great War. So after the war was finished, the Earth Directorate was created. And if you look at World War I with the creation of the League of Nations, World War II, the UN, my assumption is most likely that the war was a war between corporations. And if it was the entire earth directorate, it's likely corporations over the whole world. So it's a safe assumption in my mind to just assume that not only did America's workforce not develop its rights, but the world as a whole didn't get on that board. And so the entirety of human history from 1901 has just slowly been more and more under the control of corporations. I don't know, Reed, did did America kind of beat other countries out with sort of workers' rights? Was that a thing that kind of started in America and then went over to Europe? or In your opinion, do you think there was any intermixing in between that?
1: uh, I can't honestly speak to which nation or which nations sort of um, came up with more collective workers' rights. I know it was a larger movement in the 20th century. Um, You have books like The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, which was published, I think, in 1906 or so, talking about the the living conditions and work conditions in meatpacking industry in Chicago. Um, and I guess my perspective on it is like, yeah, um, it really depended on the country, I think, with a lot of places. When I think of the Industrial Revolution and the turn of the 20th century, I always think of Britain. I always think of the UK and thinking about the factories and stuff like that people were working in and the conditions there. I think America's child labor force. Oh, yeah. 100% working in the mines and stuff like that. And, um, again, I can't with good faith say which country did it first. I mean, I know not too long after this game takes place is when, you know, the Soviet uprising took place with Lenin and everything. So, Russia did it their own way, so um, <laughs> as
0: Russia tends to.
1: After World War One, right? So uh, it was well, d- kind of during. So it was. It's it's, it's a long right. and complicated history, and I'm going to have some right. history nerds on my ass about this or butt on this. But um, gotcha. Yeah, it's just I. I just think generally, you know, in the 20th century, you see a lot of this hyper corporatization of industries and the real, real golden dawn of capitalism really rising before it is the sort of cushy. Um, social media ads that we see for corporations and Arby's having a Facebook page and being all meme and stuff like that. It was very, very different time back then. Um, so, to kind of not belabor the point and make this into a 20th century labor po- uh, podcast, that's um, next week. That's next week. I just think it's cool to see this idea that <clears throat> history comes to a certain point and then something doesn't happen. It's like that. That, that kind of joke about a time traveler moves a chair and something wicked happens. And in this case, it's, you know, William McKinley's not assassinated in 1901. So the entirety of the 20th century, the, the, the capitalist corporate entities that be go kind of unchecked and become these mega corporations that spread into the stars. And that's really the background and backbone of a lot of this game.
0: Precisely. So, Later on in the 21st century, the skip drive was invented, and that's basically the faster than light travel for this space-faring universe. I don't know any particular references. If you want to say it's closer to like hyperspace and Star Wars, they don't really get too deep into that. It's just a skip drive. It's all you need to know. Let's keep rolling. Yep. So after they have been able to travel faster than light, the Earth Directorate, went about basically sectioning off partial parcels of space and just selling them to the highest bidder. So 10 corporations on Earth band together to create the Halcyon holding company and purchased a part of space which would now be known as Halcyon. From there, they sent a colony ship called the Groundbreaker to settle. Shortly after, uh, they sent the Hope, which is where kind of our hero's journey starts. Basically, these people were contract workers that essentially sold their entire life away to come to where they were guaranteed jobs in the stars. However, nine years into the 10 year journey, the skip drive of the hope fails, and it's forced to travel at sublight speeds, extending the trip by another 26 years. There's, I believe there was 24 people con- like awake for this. Everyone else was in cryosleep, uh, like a maintenance team. So those people had one remaining year of food left to last them 26. And this is kind of the first part of where this story gets dark. They slowly turned to cannibalism and caused a mutiny within the ship, forcing the captain to basically hole himself up in the control room with one other person. And lock down the cryopods because the the people that mutinied against him were just basically eating the people in cryosleep.
1: Yeah, we all we all do that sometimes.
0: You know it's it's like ten o'clock, you got your you got your shorts on, you're ready for bed, but you just got the midnight munchies, you're gonna pop into the pod and see who's there. Long pig. Long pig. Uh shortly after that they basically tried to drill into the the control room in which the captain just bravely went out and did something the the kind of this part of the game you pick up later just reading logs and it said the drilling stopped but the captain never returned so it's presumed that the captain did his work and then eventually succumbed to his wounds and the i believe he was a janitor left in the control room eventually just starved to death so that's a fun little tale that is fun so while the ship is on its sublight trip to Halcyon, the people of the Groundbreaker begin to colonize. They choose a planet that is dubbed Terra 1 and begin to terraform the planet. Things don't go as well as you'd hope. The terraforming process mutated the creatures, make, making basically these kind of over exaggerated beasts, you've got things that look like dogs, but they're just crazy wolves. Some really cool artwork went into these and designs a lot of them are animals you would probably see on Earth, just kind of alienized a bit. I believe the actual reason for that is the company wanted to bring in flora and fauna of Earth to just make things more homey. And just something went wrong there and just warped these creatures to just be mean, nasty things. Uh, some really cool things you can see like morale mushrooms that are just huge and just some really weird stuff happened but that made terra one extremely dangerous after trying to make it work for a while most of the corporations pulled out of terra one and they basically started re uh, terraforming a different planet terra two well one particular company monarch stellar industries stayed behind and was eventually able to gain rights of the moon using some legal loopholes which as you imagine didn't sit well with the other corporations so they basically had a monopoly on this planet and the board which is the entire entity of leaders of these corporations voted sanjar nandi off of the board and put the planet on basically an embargo so that's where we're going to leave terra one which will then be renamed monarch for anyone wondering why there wasn't a terra one in the game that's going to leave we're going to leave that there for now so then the final thing just to kind of get everyone in the mind frame of what's going on here before we get into the game about the setting is the corporations are basically the government in this situation everything is owned by them earth is literally 10 years away by faster than light travel and when people are here working, they are literally owned by them. We will interact with people in the game where they do things or, or say things where it's just like, oh, I can't do this because I am the property of this corporation. So that's kind of the mindset where we're looking at when, or when we are kind of looking at this stuff, like it's, it's the, a capitalist government where the, the government is a, a company.
1: A corporatocracy.
0: A corporatocracy. There you go. You know how to make word talk better than me.
1: Me make word talk. Good. Me smart
0: man. To get into the actual story.
1: Yes. So let's let's kind of summarize things here for a bit. So if you can say in like maybe a, a two sentence summary, kind of break down what the setting is here. You know, you're talking a lot about the specifics of embargoes and corporate entities, but can you kind of just break down in, in, in just a, a brief description what this setting is all about
0: so it's about exploring space for corporate gain and the common man breaking his back for a little wealth i mean it's really it's really a working man story
1: all right so we are now moving into the actual story of the outer worlds now that we've covered all of this lovely lovely political discourse conversation we're jumping into the actual story which is really the the goal of our podcast so At the beginning of Outer Worlds, we see Phineas Wells, an outlaw scientist wanted by the board. He breaches the derelict colony ship, the Hope. After defeating the Hope's defenses, Wells steals a single cryopod. Before he escapes, a battleship skip jumps in and opens fire. Wells' ship suffers heavy damage, but the small ship skip drive engages just before the battleship is able to deliver a fatal blow. From this point, we change to the first-person perspective of the story's main protagonist slash antagonist, The Stranger. The Stranger regains consciousness in an escape pod located on Wells' secret lab in the asteroid belts above Terra-2. While prepping the craft, Wells explains that he is planning on helping all of the colonists eventually, but was only able to revive one as the hypersleep is fatal without his proprietary concoction. Due to his wanted status, Wells needs the Stranger's help to acquire more ingredients for this cure, and has hired a smuggler, Hawthorne, to help guide the Stranger through the unfamiliar world. Down on Terra 2, Hawthorne activates the signal beacon and the Stranger escape pod is launched. As the Stranger leaves the escape pod, they see Hawthorne crushed under the escape pod. Wells instructs the Stranger to take Hawthorne's ship as he won't be needing it anymore. The Stranger sneaks, fights, or talks their way onto the ship and then must deal with some marauders that have eyed the unguarded prize. Aboard the Unreliable, we encounter ADA, ADA, the ship's sentient AI. After a failed attempt to kill the Stranger, Ada hands over command of the ship to the Stranger. Ada informs the Stranger that the ship is inoperable due to a broken power regulator. Ada thinks the leader of Edgewater, a local settlement, may be able to help acquire a new regulator, so the Stranger sets off to find Reed Thompson.
0: Ada is a really interesting character that we don't talk too much about. Um, like I, like Reed said, se- she's semi-sentient. Um, so the original owner of the ship hawthorne kind of tweaked and put more power into her and she's able to actually feel general remorse when we find out that hawthorne is dead uh she's a a a pretty interesting character to just kind of talk to for a little bit but we're not going to get too into her story just because you don't really grow she's just kind of there and goes through some stuff and just kind of talks with you, but she's a, a fun little character to talk to for a little bit. She tells some really bad jokes that usually involve killing the person she's telling the joke to and can't quite understand why it's not a joke, so she's fun.
1: And I think we should preface for the audience of the people that have not played this game yet, The Stranger is your playing character, correct?
0: Correct, yes. You can still name your character, but everyone either, or like, you're kind of no known as The Stranger. Um, and then your crew will just call you captain. So the stranger, when the stranger comes up, is your player character. And
1: that's why I mentioned antagonist or protagonist, depending on your moral choices.
0: Correct. But again, we will be focusing on the protagonist side of the game. And then the only other one thing I wanted to get kind of your opinion on, Reed. What do you think about the ship's name? The Unreliable?
1: I, I think it's like perfect. I mean, it kind of has a really tongue-in-cheek right you know name to it I mean
0: right and I'm not sure I know you said you only played this once but the ship is actually called the reliable if you look at like the plaque on the wall captain Hawthorne obviously acquired this through some less than reputable means and just basically wrote in un in front of it Just kind of the tongue-in-cheek joking there, especially when you look at some famous ships. Like going back to Firefly, you know, Serenity has some big meaning to the captain. That was the battle that kind of lost his side the war, forcing him to basically become an outlaw. Star Trek, you've got the Enterprise, you know, going forth, searching space, and here we get the good old unreliable.
1: And I think there's something within sci-fi whenever you have a a a franchise, whether it's a, a TV show, a movie, or a video game. Anytime you you put a lot of emphasis on a vehicle, especially like a big moving ship, having a name related to it really, it makes it its own character in a way. Look Look at the Millennium Falcon, you know, look at a lot of these, look at Serenity, look at all of these major, you know, cultural entities that we know and just how you can just say the name and people automatically know. Obviously, this game isn't well, as well renowned yet right now. Maybe it becomes, you know, more of a cult hit as time moves forward, but Something like the Unreliable, that could definitely, I think, stick with a lot of people if they're playing this. And um, it, it's just that it's just kind of a name that I don't know, it just it just it's memorable in a way.
0: It is. And there's so much that uh, like having a ship represents even even a car, You like just the idea of you might be in whatever situation you're in, but on this ship, you're completely free. I think that's probably why they give you your own ship right away in this game i mean obviously it helps for logistics but there's a lot going on again comparing to firefly because i love the show but in that show they live in a very similar world where you know life's rough and there's a lot of laws and rules imposed on you but when you're in your ship you're completely free same thing you're driving in your car yay You've got to avoid the cops, but you're still completely free. There's a lot of symbology there. Symbolism. Absolutely. A little boondock saints for you.
1: Yeah, it just, it just like I was mentioning before in my affinity for Cowboy Bebop, I mean, the main ship in Cowboy Bebop is the Bebop. So, you know, it's half the name of the show, so it really does... It's important. It, yeah, it solidifies the importance that a ship can represent in an otherwise really messed up world like this obviously takes place in. And moving on to the next location, um, as the stranger is dictated from Ada to go down to Edgewater, do you want to tell us a little bit about Edgewater?
0: I would love to. So, as Reed said, uh, Edgewater is a settlement, a corporate town on Terra 2. That would be the second planet where Terra formation didn't go poorly. So, Edgewater is owned by Spacer's Choice, and it serves as a support system to the Salt Tuna Cannery, supervised by Thompson. Edgewater has recently fallen victim to the plague caused by poor work ethic as tobson would like people to believe realistically the plague is caused by the poor diets of the citizen you see salt tuna has overfished the local area so badly that it has begun to mix wood chips mushrooms sand and canid bits which are kind of like big mutated dogs into their canned food which conveniently enough is pretty much what most of the people's diets consist of During their time in Edgewater, the stranger helps the locals with some mundane issues and meets two companions, Pavardi and Vicar Max. The meeting with Reed reveals the location of two power cores at a geothermal geothermal power plant, one for Edgewater and one for the Botanical Lab. The Botanical Lab is a small town created by deserters of Edgewater and run by Adelaide McDivitt. McDivitt has found a way to bring fertility back to the land of Terra Two, creating more sustainable food source for the people of her town. So the reason that she deserted was because her son fell victim to the plague and she holds a great disdain for Edgewater and its inhabitants as Reed refused to provide a treatment for him. So at this point, it is up for the stranger to decide which settlement they will take the power core from inevitably leading to the downfall of that settlement. The best possible outcome in this situation is to divert the power from the garden, but convince McDivitt to go back to Edgewater and also convince Reed to step down or take care of him through different means. Uh, that is, this actually causes the least amount of suffering and Edgewater itself will be converted from the cannery to a garden and offer a more sustainable food source. So finally, with power restored to the unreliable, the Stranger must find his way to access Stellar Bayon Monarch, which has been blocked by the board, as we previously discussed. The Stranger is instructed to find a black market fence named Gladys on the Groundbreaker, who can assist in this problem.
1: Okay, so yeah, I I think what's so interesting about Edgewater and what makes me laugh is the cannery and how they're taking all of these quote unquote unnatural foodstuffs like wood chips and sand, which is something that I had a pretty common diet of back when I was in elementary school, but which is something that happened a lot back in the nineteenth uh, and twentieth centuries is adding all of these, you know, additives and, you know, supplements to the actual foodstuffs. I think even to this day, some manufacturers of certain items, I don't know if it's peanut butter or what it is, but they can have a certain amount of like bugs minced up into their I don't even know. You know, it's just yeah. stuff like that.
0: Bugs in peanut butter. And actually, the practice of stuffing sausage is still something that's done today. If you look at some, even home recipes for that stuff, like calls for putting rice in or dried bread, it's just a way to extend the meat. But it should still be food that you're putting into your food.
1: Yeah, but I think all of us have lived through elementary and middle school lunches, so I think we can survive.
0: Oh, yeah. I uh, I poor school lunch every day of my life dog still do i still break into the local school and eat lunch there why not some of my best friends
1: i mean that's what you do sometimes anyway yeah it's
0: just what you do um so yeah the other the other interesting thing about edgewater this is where our player slash the stranger kind of gets their first idea of what's all weird here so the first character that most people will probably encounter is a gravedigger and he wants the stranger to go collect fees and what we find by doing this quest is these are not these are fees that people are paying on behalf of other people to actually stay buried so if you can't afford to be buried they will just dig you up and throw you off to the side so just a basic human thing that we've been doing for centuries, I mean, back before we could start fires, you know, burying our dead, it's not a thing unless you can afford it.
1: So as we mentioned before, uh, moving the plot forward, the stranger must find a black market fence named Gladys on the Groundbreaker. The Groundbreaker is the first colony ship sent by Halcyon that has been converted into an independent orbital station. It's the, the only place on Halcyon not controlled by the board or another corporation. There is still a corporate rep station aboard. The crew is protective of their independence. They are led by June Lee Tenson, an engineer whose family has been keeping Ground Creeper operational since it departed Earth. Arriving at Groundbreaker, the stranger is informed the Unreliable has been impounded, and cannot leave until issues are cleared with the board representative, Uddin Bedford. Bedford impounded the ship because he has a working relationship with Hawthorne, and is under the impression that Hawthorne would turn in wells. Bedford asks the stranger if they know where wells can be found. Following this path can lead the stranger to side with the board, but in our story, the altruistic story, the Stranger denies knowing wells, and with that, the Unreliable is no longer impounded. During the Stranger's time on Groundbreaker, they have the opportunity to help Jun Lee. The Groundbreaker is in need of some repairs, and the particular parts need are in the back bays of the ship, which have been overtaken by outlaws. Jun Lee's only other option is to turn to the board for help, but their help will cost the Groundbreaker its independence. The Stranger can acquire two more companions on the Groundbreaker, Ellie and Felix. The stranger meets Gladys. She will happily sell them the Navkey for a large price. But since the stranger can likely not afford it, Gladys sends the stranger to investigate a distress signal and report quote-unquote interesting information to her. However, with Navkey in hand, the crew of the Unreliable sets off to Monarch in search of an informant broker hired to find the chemicals Phineas needs. So is there anything you want to kind of go over with the Groundbreaker situation?
0: So there's less going on in the Groundbreaker as far as kind of setting the world. There's a A couple of interesting things that I picked up on the second time through, there's a lot of vendors there, and when you talk to them, everyone has this little slogan they're supposed to say related to their company, and they did a really good job voice acting these to make them sound really just bummed to be there and giving it out in a really, like, monotonous delivery where, like, it looks like they're being, like, having their fingers, the fingernails pulled, just saying it. So other than, like, we talked about with sort of that backstory of the engine bays. I didn't see there being a whole lot kind of setting the overall tone of the game, other than just talking with some of those people. But we will come back to June Lee when we talk about Parvati's story. Uh, there's a little bit of something going on there. But other than that, the Groundbreaker really just serves as kind of an in-between station between Edgewater and Monarch, and then just kind of helps develop and flesh out the world a little bit more. So Again, when we talk about it's a dark world with a lot of sad stuff going on, but there's still some free places, some independence that kind of gives us the hope to keep pushing on in the story so we don't get too bummed out.
1: Sure. So, yeah, it does kind of, I don't want to see, it It doesn't seem like necessarily filler. I think it kind of moves the plot forward and it shows the sort of um, duality of options that are available to the player.
0: Like it's it's a fun place to hang out. There's a couple of side quests there. Um, you know, you have to you also see kind of the bad parts of that. Even the groundbreaker itself isn't perfect. Like when we get into the back bays, it's all basically bandit territory. Imagine if the whole city of New York was taken over by the Warriors from the movie Warriors, right? Like it's all just kind of owned by gangs down there and the security team of the Groundbreaker doesn't even go down there. That's why they can't go to get the parts they need to maintain their ship so even that's not perfect all right and after the stranger acquires the nav key from the uh, gladys on the groundbreaker they're finally able to break through the embargo and land on monarch as we discussed earlier monarch was originally terra one the moon they failed to terraform the stranger is instructed to meet with Nioka, a future companion who knows the whereabouts of the broker when the stranger helps cure her hangover, Nyoka takes the crew to Devil's Peak Station, where they dispatch marauders that have taken over the station. The broker can't transmit the location of the chemicals to Wells due to interference caused by MSI, led by Sanjar Nandi, and the Iconoclasts led by Graham Bryant. The Iconoclasts are a group of survival, survivalist revolutionaries intent on overthrowing the corporate establishment. The stranger convinces them to stop transmitting and returns to the broker to send Wells info on the chemicals. Upon transmitting the signal, a ship crashes, and Sanjar and Graham will argue over who should get the ship's targeting module. Another difficult choice the stranger is forced to make will be which one to side with. They can either recover it and give it to MSI or Graham, but again, the best option is to try to barter peace between them, in which they will come back and form a much stronger society the stranger reunites with wells at his secret lab and finds that minister clark has been hoarding the system's supply of dimethyl sulfoxide which is the chemical in question needed to resurrect the sleeping colonists the stranger is instructed to meet with an informant in the docking bay of byzantium uh, which is also on terra 2, so it's on basically the same moon or planet that uh Edgewater's on, but it's like the ritzy part of town. And that sums up what happens on Monarch.
1: Yeah, when you're reading that, all I can think of is gnocchi. Because you kept saying gnocca. So now I want some gnocchi with gnocca.
0: Oh man, I could go go for some gnocchi. Um, But yeah, the one interesting thing that I really enjoyed when you get to MSI and talk to Sanjar. uh, He's not the most competent business leader, but... One thing I really like about him is part of the reason that he's outcast from the board and everyone, not just for kind of taking over a monopoly on Monarch, is he actually kind of thinks workers should have rights. It's this strange new idea he's been working on, like giving people two days off a week Wow! and like not working them for all day, every day and like having like mandatory breaks and just all this really weird stuff. And he almost thinks people will work more efficiently and better if they can rest and recuperate. So he's no. just this really strange character that I don't understand at all.
1: who Would have thought that having workers' rights would be a positive thing.
0: I don't know. But I mean, obviously he's still like a big part of the bad in the system, but he I like that they add him in this way just to show that some people are cogs in the machine, but not everyone is a bad apple, if right. I can mix metaphors.
1: Yeah, I think it's so cool looking at all these different plot points. Obviously, I didn't play as far as you did, but it's really cool to see how the entire game, the entire basic plot of this, is you trying to find these ingredients for this concoction to sort of help revive and stabilize other people of your ship, and all the while you're sort of seeing the interplay of these different corporations and different um, societies at, at you know that are that are in play on these different locations, and it's just really interesting to see how there's this really big social impact and this really big social and political tone in a lot of these interactions and how most players that are playing this aren't really necessarily seeing all of these larger conflicts necessarily, but it just really does build, I think, a larger environment for players to realize that their choice matters.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. This, this whole game is kind of like all of these, these places are on a seesaw where everyone, we're both, people weigh the same and they're just waiting for something to kind of throw it one way or the other.
1: I think that's so, the name of this I think that's the name of this episode, a seesaw in space.
0: A seesaw in space.
1: So as the plot kind of moves on, as Jeremy was saying, back on Terra 2, your next location that you're supposed to head to is Byzantium. And Byzantium is a wealthy city on Terra 2 which serves as the capital of the system and the residency of the board. Corporate soldiers roam the streets and act as a militant police force to protect the wealthy. Utilizing the information of the contact, the stranger confronts Clark at his home. It is revealed that he has been under house arrest on orders of Chairman Rockwell. Clark deduces that Rockwell has been conducting business in his name. He gives the stranger a key to his office and asks him to send a message to Earth explaining the board's unethical practices. Subverting the security of the HHC headquarters, the stranger enters Clark's office to find Rockwell has annexed Clark's office and is in the process of merging the two. Using Rockwell's personal terminal, the stranger discovers that Halcyon is on the verge of collapse due to a food shortage. The solution the board is rolling out is the Lifetime Employment Program. They intend on putting all but the brightest people back into cryo sleep, waking people when they are needed for work. So they're essentially weeding out the weak and making sure that the most able bodied people are able to work on these systems. The dimethyl sulfoxide is being used in a secret lab under the Ministry of Accuracy and Moral Key. The stranger then infiltrates the lab where they find test subjects in cryosleep as scientists attempt to recreate the Wells formula. As the stranger transfers the chemical into a portable container, they must decide if they will leave enough for the subjects to be kept alive, or take it all off to Wells. And that moves us on to the next location, which is back at the unreliable, at Wells
0: Lab. So en route to Wells Lab, the stranger is contacted by Sophia Akand. Akhand works for the board as a sort of high-ranking enforcer. She wants the stranger to give up the location of Wells' lab and help the board bring in the outlaw. The stranger refuses and continues to the lab. At the lab, when pressed about waking people in an already starving colony, Wells reveals that he was aware of the food shortage the whole time. You see, the hope is full of scientists and engineers that should be able to help solve the issue, unlike the board who he claims is just basically attempting to put a bandage on a gangrenous wound. After a brief discussion of logistics, Wells and The Stranger agree on a foolhardy plan. They plan to skip Jump the Hope to the secret lab of Wells using the Unreliable's power and nav computer. So at this point is where we kind of realize what's going on and why things are in a downward spiral. Uh, Looking at it, essentially they put the people that own the corporations and just the grunt workers in the groundbreaker to just build up the infrastructure but then all the smart people that can figure out problems were essentially stuck on the hope which ended up not showing up so that kind of leads into what's going on here basically you've got people that only care about money and people that just maybe can't you know figure some of this stuff out so i think that's kind of the core root cause of our issues here is we just don't have any just Thinking minds in Halcyon at this time because they're all frozen on a ship.
1: So when the crew returns to the Hope, they find a security detail has been put in place. After dispatching the guards, they connect the Unreliable to Hope's skip drive and patch Ada into the computer. After Ada reiterates the danger and stupidity of this plan, it engages the drive. In a flash, the Hope appears outside of the lab. Celebration is cut short as the crew finds that the board has found the lab and arrests Wells. Refusing to let their work go to waste, the crew plans an assault on the prison planet Tartarus.
0: So this is one of the other fun uh, endings. You can choose to skip jump the ship yourself. And based on how smart you are, you can either successfully skip jump it to Wells' lab, or you can skip jump it into a sun. Oh. Yeah. There's. I-, I watched a speed run where a guy beat the game in 13 minutes by just ignoring everything and just kind of running around and then at the end just jumped it into the sun so that's a fun little thing that can happen like i said this is a this is an english muffin with lots of nooks and crannies
1: right and like we said at the beginning of the podcast this is really going through one perspective we're not going through every perspective because then this would be a multi-part episode on one individual game so i think jeremy will kind of lead us out with learning about the final conclusion of the plot on tartarus
0: tartarus the prison planet that makes tartar sauce and that is not a lie The unreliable is immediately placed on lockdown upon landing on Tartarus. A guard instructs them to stay on the vessel until they can be arrested and executed. Finding that an unreasonable plan, the crew rushes from the unreliable, fighting their way through the prison, and depending on who and how you helped them, the groundbreaker, iconoclast, and MSI will rush in to help. As they fight through the prison, the crew encounters Chairman Rockwell, who gloats over the capture of Wells, and converses with the stranger shortly. After dealing with him either diplomatically or violently, the crew will continue through the prison encountering a robotic warden, and finally, Sophia Akand, who puts up a pitiful yet okay fight. Okay, it's not even okay, it's just pitiful. You shoot her and she's dead. That's how bullets work. Wells is freed from his cell, and after a brief thanks, he tells us that Hyalcyon has been out of contact with Earth for over three years. The colony must survive on its own as it has been cut off, and they must figure out their issues on their own. The stranger is then offered if they would like to lead the colony and gets a little bit of say on what they plan on doing, whether they want to lead with an iron fist or diplomatically. And that takes us to the end of the game. I'm not going to go into all the endings, but in this particular ending, it's very positive-ish. Um, It, it talks about how it's a it's a hard... Life, but things are looking up is essentially what this ending leads the The best ending is just literally like it's rough, but hopefully we'll be okay,
1: yeah, I mean it just looking at all this plot point information, you know it's really overwhelming, I think just from an a, the casual outsider, but I think when you're involved in this this campaign and this plot, I mean, I think it's a little bit more. Personable, because there's so many different options that you can take with these people just trying to make their way in the galaxy. And it, it, it just seems so crazy how interwoven the, the politics and the society is and how it doesn't seem like there's any real right or wrong answer with any of these, depending on your own personal input. Um, I think the question I have for you, Jeremy, is after looking at these plot points and all of these locations... Is there a a point in this game that you think it really hits its peak? Like, what what point of all of these plot points do you think it's really at its best?
0: Honestly, I really enjoyed the beginning of the game. Setting up the world and just kind of how rough it is. And then I think it kind of mellows out. And a lot of this depends on the orders you do these things. So on my first playthrough, I was just my typical scatterbrain just... Go do every quest in the order I pick it up. So I kind of lost track of the overall goal. But the second playthrough I just did, I really focused on only the things that were relevant to whether, like the groundbreaker, like the people that you're actually affecting in the end. Um, and what I found really actually hit me really, really close to home was the relationship that you can kind of develop with your crew. Their stories aren't necessarily super long or in depth. But what I really enjoyed about them is they're really basic human stories. Um, you know, in, in some of these games, you get mass effect where there's you're like invading a clone facility, or I don't remember what one, I think it was Jack where some sort of like lab where they did experiments on these. These are all pretty much just like stuff every person goes through. And Reed, I know you're an ex um, spy who's just waiting for someone to kidnap his family so he can go off to Turkey and murder like a thousand people and get them back. I'm just a regular dude. Yeah. How did you know that? Uh, Hey man, I've got my ways. So I kind of wanted to take a couple more minutes just at the end here to just kind of talk about each of these companions individually and just kind of like why I think it's neat that they focus on just some really basic stories
1: and when yes. you say companions, is this something where these people will, will, will actually like fight alongside of you? Or is it just like, hey, go do this for me and I'm going to stay in the ship? Or do they actually fight alongside of you?
0: Yes. Yeah, so you only get two at one time. But they will fight along. Or like, You can have the full amount of them on your crew. But out questing and fighting with you, there's only two at a time. And, you know, they did a good job coding, like, the dialogue and stuff. So, like, some of them like other crew members more, or just get along with them better, and they've got a little back and forth with them as, as you go. Or, like, when you get on the ship, Ada will be like, oh, so-and-so are complaining to each other about the current state of affairs. And you can go and just listen to them bicker back and forth, which is nice. But it's all pretty civil, and there's a good sort of community going on. But, yeah, they can fight with you. They boost your stats a little bit based on what they do. But I really enjoy just the kind of quasi-little family they kind of get during the story. And then after the game is done, presuming you did their personal quests and made the right decisions, you know, much like a real family, they kind of go their separate ways and find their way where they just have this perfect little niche niche in the world. So the first character we'll talk about is usually the first one you'll meet, uh, Parvati Holcomb. A little bit about her backstory that kind of sheds more light into the rough world they live in is when she was a baby, she was separated from her mother as her mother was forced to relocate due to contractual obligations and she was raised by her father who later died from being overworked. Her father is where she learned how to be an engineer and so she basically serves as the ship's engineer. And when we are when we go to Groundbreaker, she asks if she can come with us to meet June Lee to learn more about engineering on a ship because she's only ever done it at a factory. And then part of that conversation when you're talking to Jun Lee, we kind of get the sense that she's attracted to her. And as you just kind of talk to Jun Lee, you're able to help her through these issues because she reveals that she's never been interested in the physical part of a relationship. And it's kind of caused issues in the past where she's been seen as cold. And you're able to just kind of go, most of it's all just talking and like gathering stuff to help her go on like a date with a girl, you know? Weird, right? So at the end of the game, if you do everything right, she eventually joins with the groundbreaker and her and Jun Lee just spend the rest of their life happy together.
1: You said uh, in our early conversations, you had mentioned that there's something significant about the name Parvati.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me. Um, so. Parvati, I did a little research because there's a lot of this stuff going on in this game when you look at like quest names or characters names, a lot of different things pulling from different lore or like quest names that are references to old sci fi novels. Um, And there's just a little bit of irony in her name. So Parvati is actually the name of a Hindu goddess of fertility, which is just kind of an interesting contrast to the fact that Parvati is not interested at all in a in physical aspects of relationships where most gods of fertility are pretty into that kind of thing. All right, so the next character that we will talk about is the next character we meet. So we meet Vicar Max, and his backstory is pretty simplistic, too. He grew up working, just a working man like everyone else, but decided that the working man's life wasn't right for him. So he decided to join the the Order of Scientific Inquiry, which is one of the two major religions in... uh, Outer Worlds, essentially, the OSI is just basically keeping people in line, sort of every, there's an architect, and he's got a plan, and everyone's got to stick to their plan, because that's what they were born to do. And he kind of thought something was missing in that. And so he did some digging deeper into some of the ancient texts that they had, until he stumbled upon some forbidden text, which actually got him thrown in jail. Uh, While well in jail, you kind of he kind of gave more into his angers and frustration to the point where he almost beat an inmate to death. While well in prison, he ended up talking to another inmate that gave him information on one of these forbidden books. And he decides to post up in Edgewater as the vicar of Edgewater so he can search for the journal more easily. When the stranger shows up, he asks you to investigate and find the journal. And then later on, we realize that it's actually in French, which no one speaks anymore, because I guess France doesn't have good colonies. I don't know. After meeting up with the guy that gave him the bad information, the stranger can help the man survive by calming down Maximilian, as he's kind of a hothead and easy to anger. The man directs him to a hermit who allows him to use her meditation chambers where he has sort of an existential crisis and actually converses with the a ghost-like figure of his mother and himself when he's talking to himself he realizes that he's forcing himself to live up to expectations that he just can't and just aren't him and when he's done with this experience he becomes more calm and relaxed and doesn't allow his anger to control him as badly and again after the after the story is resolved he ends up going and just helping people and kind of drops the violence the only time he is ever aggressive again is to just help defend the less fortunate so that's pretty cool he's a pretty cool guy all right the next companion we'll talk about is Ellie um i think Ellie's story is maybe not as strong as the first two basically she grew up rich on Byzantium and she She grew up rich on Byzantium and went to school and became a surgeon, but was just unhappy with her life there. So she fled to the outer reaches and basically became a mercenary and adventurer. She's kind of jaded and apathetic and just chooses to only work as a mercenary. So she doesn't really care what other people need or want, only doing what serves her. And when we stop at at Byzantium for the first time, she will request that the stranger come with her to her parents' house to basically just make them uncomfortable. She wants to show up and show off this kind of rough and tumble crew she's with and just make her hoity-toity parents' skin crawl. But when she shows up, we are surprised to find that while she's gone, they basically just said she died because they didn't want to deal with the embarrassment of having a daughter go off and become a mercenary. And not only that, but while she was gone, they also cashed in on her life insurance policy. And they asked her to basically leave and not come back. So she comes up with a scheme to shift the insurance policy over to a separate account. And we help her with that. And her parents are cut off and just kind of left to go back to work like everyone else. Um, like I said, I felt like her story was a little weak and there wasn't a ton of character development afterwards. It said that when she leaves the unreliable, that she admits that maybe she does need people and gets a ship and her own crew. So you get a little closure at the end, but during the actual quest itself, when you're talking to her at the end, like, it seems more immature and like, oh, I just wanted to upset my parents than actual character development. But sometimes that's how it be. You know, I think it's
1: so cool with these characters, how fleshed out and personal it sort of becomes. You know, in these big sort of sci-fi fantasy worlds, it's easy to get lost in the sort of grand nature of space travel and stuff like that. But when you kind of break it down to, like, the personal level, it's such a cool concept to see how human a lot of these characters are.
0: Yeah, that's, that's what really struck me with this is, like, there is sci-fi elements going on and, like, really weird stuff happening. But at the end, it just still shows that people are still people, if that makes sense. Like we have, we haven't changed just where we are has. And it's just nice to kind of be back and grounded in that and not always doing something crazy or action based. And like literally with Pravati, part of her quest is just sitting down in a bar and having a few drinks with her and trying to give her the courage to actually act on her feelings.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's cool to have that breakdown and sort of relationship building in a sense.
0: It sure is. Um, if it's okay with you, I'm just going to finish up on a couple of these guys and then we can get on to whatever's next. All right, ma'am.
1: Yeah, it sounds good. Let's finish up all these
0: companions here. All these companions. All right. So Felix Millstone, we again meet on Groundbreaker. Um, the first time we meet him, he is the third part of a, the first time we meet him, he is in an argument with a corporate trooper, that's kind of being mediated by a Mardette, which is the groundkeeper's security force. Uh, turns out he got mad because his supervisor insulted his favorite tossball team, and he beat him up with a tossball stick. I believe it was, or maybe he just drop kicked him or something. Uh, Felix's favorite move is to just drop kick people. He's dubbed as a drop kick aficionado when you like analyze him with a TTD. So. When we talk to felix we find out that he grew up an orphan in the back bays of the groundbreaker and he didn't really have any education other than just basically watching serials which would be like their version of tv and at some point he was taken in by an outlaw called clyde harlow uh, who taught him everything he knows and basically taught him to question authority and disobey we eventually will be approached by Felix, uh, telling us that Harlow has been in contact with him and wants to meet him. When we go to where Harlow is, he explains that he's been planning a revolution and wants to know if Phoenix is still able to join his team and that Felix needs to prove his worth by taking out a betrayer to the organization named Rufus Trask. When we're finally able to hunt Trask down, Trask's side of the story is a little different, saying that Clyde Harlow is actually on the payroll of and has been pirating ships to help the board make certain political and business advantages. So when we go back and confront Harlow about this, he turns aggressive and convinces his crew to join in and attack us. After the fight, you can sense that Felix is really broken up about the whole thing and mentions that it's going to take him a lot of time to get over. And I think the biggest thing I get from this is Kind of that feeling I feel everyone gets where it's just like you really don't always want to meet your heroes or you find out that maybe like an important member of your family has an opinion that you don't really agree with. And it's just a hard thing to kind of come to terms with when you used to look up to somebody and they're not, whether it's politically or ethically, just aligned with what you believe in. I don't know if you've got any experiences with that, Reed.
1: I mean, sometimes uh, largely what's beneficial for me is that a lot of my family and extended family have a lot of the same political views. So there's not been a lot of conflict in my life, you know, in terms of building relationships with my friends and family based on politics. So I've been very blessed in that regard to not have to deal with the sort of political spectrum dealings in terms of my interpersonal relationships. That's good. Yeah,
0: I know. I know. <laughs> I'm I know like I'm like I'm like 50, yeah. 50. I'm like fifty fifty. I'm like 50 But my family's at least respectable when it comes to you know you having another opinion. Right. But have you ever had a situation where maybe you liked a like an artist or something like that. And then now that you basically know between Twitter and Facebook, you know, the opinion of everybody out there because it's always posted where someone just says something or does something. You're just like, man, I don't know if I can like you anymore.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think with the, the, the the explosion of social media in the last 10, 15 years, understanding that your heroes are not necessarily the best people. And it's hard to look up to people because they sometimes say or do dumb stuff, you know, whether it's right now or something they did in the past, it's really difficult sometimes to, I guess,
0: process that.
1: Yeah, morally process what they're doing. So looking at a lot of these characters, you can really empathize with their plight uh, in a lot of ways. And I think that's what makes this game so successful.
0: I agree. And luckily, you only have to listen to me talk about two more characters. So sit in, buckle up, and let's get going. So the next character we'll talk about is Nyoka. Uh, she's a native to Monarch and was kind of a hybrid big game hunter-merc. They'd essentially go and clean up any of those crazy critters we were talking about before. Um, she eventually revealed to us that some of the friends she used to run with have have died. And she kind of wants to collect these medallions that that they all had and just put them all together. And you also get the sense just from talking to you, not even just sense, she flat out says it, that she doesn't expect us to even help her, and she's always been disappointed in the past. And it actually took a lot for her just to ask for help, just because she doesn't want to be disappointed anymore. So, you go around collecting medallions, and she believes that there's two members of her team still alive. And when we finally track them down, we find that they're, we find them hole up in a shack, dead, and as we read their journal... It talks about how the reason they actually left Monarch wasn't just seeking money or adventure, but was they wanted to get out. They were sick of living that hard life. And that hits her pretty hard, too, because, again, she feels betrayed and let down. And then you go back to Monarch and just kind of gather up all those medallions, clear out a nest of, they call them manta queens They're like gi- or a manta queen nest. They're like giant mantis that kind of beat the crap out of you. From there, you after you clear that nest out, you just kind of, she there's just this nice little part where she puts them to rest. Like, it, it fades to black, but it's just heavily alluded that she puts all the medallions together, lays them to rest. Even the ones that she was upset with for, betr- like, essentially betraying her and, and the group. Um, so it's just kind of a nice little story of letting go, forgiveness, that sort of thing, and then just helping helping someone through kind of a loss of family, friends, or anything like that. Again, another thing that everyone will go through. And then finally is the robot Sam. Maybe a weaker story than Ellie's, but he's basically just a broken robot that you find an acid sprayer for because he was a cleaning maintenance robot. And you replace his scrubbing bubbles spraying arm with just an acid shooter. Again, even though his story is simple, there's still, if you really, really dig deep enough, it's just kind of a broken friend that you help get back on their feet like as on the nose as it is that's kind of something that i was able to attach with all these other characters that had really obvious things going on i'm sure everyone knows someone that just needs a hand kind of just to stay in this world and it's important to be there for those people and that's about as mushy as i want to get and that's all the characters reed did you have anything you'd like to say about those last couple
1: no, I mean that's there's there's a lot with this. I mean, there's a lot with this entire this entire episode just because there's so much there's so much depth and I think that's one of the things we covered in the first episode 0 is just how in the early creation of video games, it's very difficult for creators to express how characters interact, how worlds interact just because of the technical limitations at the time. But since this is a game that just came out a few years ago, you're able to build something that has this huge world, has these different political schemes, has these different social interactions, has these relationships. And I just think it's so awesome that we're at this level where, yeah, we're not going to be completely replicating human to human interactions. But I think most people playing this game and playing other games like this, like Fallout or Mass Effect, can really empathize and associate with the characters And I think this is an amazing example of that because as you're reading some of these characters, you can sort of empathize with some part of all of their character stories. And I just think that's such a great part of gaming and how it's evolved over time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's gone from just a platform where you have no idea what's going on other than just you're running through collecting mushrooms and getting big to dealing with actual, whether they're political or just interpersonal problems. Like going down the list of all these things these people go to, or have are going through whether it's simply like not being able not feeling like you can express your emotions to having a a crisis of faith you know having issues with your parents just all this really basic stuff like yeah everyone goes through it and it's just neat to kind of take a step away from this huge fantasy world and deal with some of those housekeeping things that maybe you don't get in a lot of other games with companions or if you do get it it's layered in behind a lot of other stuff and maybe that gets kind of shadowed by larger action scenes um for example you played fallout 4 right
1: yeah i love fallout 4
0: yeah like uh the what was his name paladin dance that mission with him where it's just like he doesn't know if he's a synth or not like in a way you could easily can view that as just someone that questions who they are right like whether it's a not to get into politics, but, like, whether it's just a gender thing or anything like that, but there's some action leading up to that, which I think can kind of undertone that deeper issue because you're so strung out on a cool fight or watching things explode or whatever, where all you're doing with most of these, like, a good chunk of these scenes is you're literally just talking to people, going through dialogue trees, you know? So I think, it, like, slowing it down helps you make that connection a little bit better, and I think they did a really good job in this game of... Bring, keeping you interacted. It's not just a cut scene where you're having these things. You're still interacted and talking with them and choosing what to say and hopefully making the right choices. Just like Just like me, I I have a hard time telling people what they want to hear because it's what I want to say. You know what I mean? Like They do a good job of kind of keeping you guessing and not knowing what the right thing to say is because I'm bad at talking to people.
1: Do you feel like a game like this and having these really fleshed out personal characters makes you more engaged with the game itself even if let's say let's say it's not necessarily outer worlds but it's a game like outer worlds something like mass effect it's an action game Do you think having these these really fleshed out human characters do you think that like attracts you more or keeps you more engaged with the game
0: oh absolutely it's 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 amazing how connected you can become to ones and zeros if you know what i mean like uh oh yeah there there's just something about a well-written story, but I mean, you find that, I feel like you find that in any source of media, right? Like how the first time you read or watched game of Thrones, like how bummed were you when, uh, Boromir died? Way to spoil it, man. Hey man, I'm coming in hot 10 years late.
1: I suppose. Yeah. If you haven't watched game (laughs) of Thrones at this point, you need to like, move. Yeah,
0: this is not my fault at this point.
1: Move back into society. Yeah.
0: But you know what I mean? Like you're, they're not real people. Everyone knows that, but you still find a way to connect to them. And it's really cool to see that video games have now taken that next leap where, you know, I'm, I'm half afraid to play this game on supernova difficulty because they can actually die for real. And I don't want to, like, I don't want them to die. They're my friends. I know that I'm going to help them through some stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Like,
1: yeah, I think a big part of modern gaming too, you see a lot of games really pushing the envelope of, building human relationships and stuff like that. I mean, look at the most recent God of War and the sort of like father-son dynamic that occurred in that game and how touching that was for a lot of people and how a lot of people relate to that. If you have something back in the 8 and 16-bit generation, you you can have a scrolling text screen about that. But having the technology and the capability to actually have cinematic relationships displayed in the way that modern games do is such a phenomenal thing. I mean... You know, I'm, I'm 32 years old as of last week, and the, the, the disparity between what I grew up with and what I was born into versus what's now is just, it's just insane. I think that goes for every technology that's out there, like, you know, telecommunications, but especially gaming. Like, I grew up playing, you know, Sonic and Mario and stuff like that, and now you see games like The Outer Worlds and God of War that have these just huge world building elements. And they have these huge relationships between characters, and it's, it's, it's its own environment, its its own world in itself. And I think that's what's so appealing about modern gaming is that yeah, it does take up a lot of your time. But along the way, you're learning more about the characters, and you're learning maybe something more about yourself.
0: Absolutely. And to kind of piggyback along that I think the art of storytelling has come a long way, not just with cinematics, but how they incorporate what's going on like when you're just walking around and the characters are having all these like i can't even imagine how much work goes into like having each each character have unique conversations with this character based on their relationship and just having to extrapolate that out to all the potential options but i think there's something really interesting when it comes to just like some passive story building where you can just get vibes from people just by like those half conversations they have while you're walking to go buy some apples, you know what I mean? That kind of adds another element of realism and also just passive story building onto a cinematic or, you know, a little text blurb that comes up on the screen.
1: For sure, for sure. I mean, I think we could, this is something that we could absolutely talk about ad nauseum until we're blue in the face, but, you know, we've been talking about The Outer Worlds for a while now, and it's something that you can listen to us talk about, but it is something that I think is really better appreciated by playing it and it's it's a very it's a very fun game it absolutely is i i hope to kind of jump more into it you know once i get time aside from podcasting and teaching um there's just so much to it and i think the the world is what's most appealing to me is just sort of seeing this not dystopian world but this very corporate centric world and seeing how the people that are involved and are under the thumb of these corporations interact with each other just to try to stake out a meager existence on these really derelict planets full of these crazy creatures i think if you don't if you don't have access to this it's definitely something that's readily available i mean i know outer worlds is on pc it's on the playstation xbox i think it's on switch now yeah yeah i
0: just saw it on my switch when i was looking at some other stuff earlier today actually so yeah like it's it's out there um it's been out for three years now at at this point, so I can't imagine it's still that expensive. So if you get the chance, I'd pick it up.
1: For sure. Is there anything else that you would like to cover before we wrap up here?
0: Uh, did we get a chance to talk about some of the underlying themes? I know we integrated some of those in while we were talking about them. Was, was there any...
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, we can take just a few seconds to kind of conclude everything. Like After looking at the plot points, looking at the characters of this game what are some of the major themes that you sort of take away from this game, Jeremy? Uh,
0: Well, I I think it it speaks a lot to just kind of environmentalism in general, you know, like a lot of, a lot of issues that we project that we're going to be dealing with in the future, right? Like overfishing, just how we take care of our planet, um, how we treat people, right? There's a lot going into, there's a lot coming into this game that is taken just from the real world, whether it's, who gets medicine is a thing that comes up, right? Like, they don't have enough medicine to give people in this plague, so the best workers are getting it. And it's, it's it's kind of this look at humanity versus practicality in a lot of things. Like, do we give the best workers the medicine? Or, you know, this young kid who has a potential future of anything, you know, his mother's a bright scientist. He could be a very important person of the society but he can't lift as many rocks as this guy can. You know, that kind of thing. So I think it's just a lot of the ethics of how we treat people is brought up a lot in this game.
1: Right, like giving people a number and seeing what they're... like. We, we Even in this society now, aside from the video game, we put a lot of emphasis on people's resume and their abilities and stuff like that. And that's how we measure human beings. And I think that's such a flawed system because, you know, human characteristics are only so limited to... They shouldn't be so. What I'm saying is, they shouldn't be so limited to what they can do in a job because human beings are really complex creatures, as you can imagine. So I think this game really capitalizes on the idea that human beings are more than what their work and their labor provides. And this it does poke fun at this hypercorporization and this 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 idea of just companies ruling over the world, which is what we're sort of seeing nowadays and how. I don't know, it's it's just a very, I don't want to say a uh, cautionary tale, but it kind of feels like that in a way. It feels like a satirical cautionary tale in a way. That if we kind of continue down the path we're going even right now in 2021, that this is something that we could potentially face. And I think that's what the, the, the game makers are trying to say is like human beings that are very complex and flawed creatures are going to be caught up in the whims of these corporate giants.
0: Absolutely, and I think uh, another thing you can pull from it is a lot of the stuff that happens in this game is just from one little key point in history, but I think when you look at things as a whole, it's not often necessarily just a powder keg that leads us down one thing, but a slow kind of acceptance of certain rights and stuff being taken away, and so I think it's kind of important to just pull, like, whatever rights you have as as an employer or employee of whatever job you're doing, like you should fight for whatever rights you have. Like, yeah, it's not dumb to want to take off because you want to go watch your favorite band play, right? Like that corporation doesn't really care about you. You know what I mean? They're, you're just there to make them money. And it's important to fight for those little things that may seem dumb or trivial because over time we might end up in a society like this. It doesn't necessarily just take this one big thing happening. So that's kind of a thing that I've, Sort of pulled out of there.
1: At the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Wrap it up, boys. No, at the end of the day, take care of one another. Be kind to one another. We all have to work. We all have to make money. We all have to pay the man. But just remember, our relationships are bigger than that. And always take care of yourself, first and foremost.
0: Be excellent to each other.
1: So, ladies and gentlemen, that's been The Outer Worlds. I really like this episode because it's it's... We've talked a lot about with the the first episode being on Sonic the Hedgehog. It's a really fun and plucky episode where we're talking about this 90s nostalgia and stuff like this. And then we get into this game where it's this really heavy um, sociopolitical battle between these corporate giants and the little man that is trying to make, you know, eke out an existence on the edge of these galaxies. And, you know, I think that's just the power of video games is just the ability to kind of showcase different worlds and different environments I don't know. I think it's just amazing. I just think it's amazing top to bottom that we can have these different experiences in video games. It's not something you might see every day or might be aware of every day, but it's something that we can experience if we kind of take the time to do it. Anything else you want to kind of conclude with Jeremy?
0: I think we've wrapped it up pretty good. Like I said, there's a lot going on in this game. We probably, we just grazed the top of it, so... If you're into RPGs, if you liked Fallout or anything like that, or just think it'd be interesting to hang out in this world and, I mean, even take a a less noble path and wanted to kind of figure out where that leads, I really recommend you do it. I had a lot of fun replaying this game, um, making some of those connections, and I think I'm going to play it again as a bad guy and just see where that takes me. Even though I know where it takes me, I want to follow that path and just kind of make those decisions myself, so I'd highly recommend playing this game. Um... Try to pay attention to some of those neat little, like, nods to other things in there. There's there's a few of them out there uh, that I saw. So, other than that, man, I think we we covered just about as much as we can fit into an episode. She's thick. She
1: thick. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you guys for kind of coming along with us and listening to us talk about the Outer Worlds. Again, huge game, a lot of opportunities, lots of different options depending on how you want to play Uh, I really want to thank Jeremy for taking the time to play this again and kind of go through all the research. This is something that I really relied heavily on him to kind of take the lead on, and I really appreciate him taking the time to do that. Um, Like I said, available on a lot of platforms. It's been out for a few years. There's another one coming. So if this sounds like something that really interests you, definitely take the chance and check it out. I mean, Jeremy, I'm going to let you see us out because this is something that is a bit more closer to you.
0: I mean, all I can say is, It might not be the best choice, but it's the spacer's choice. And that's
1: all that matters. A seesaw in space.
0: A seesaw in space.
1: So as we move into spooky October next month, we're going to transition into that spooky month by doing a podcast episode on a very special franchise that's near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. Whether you're a sports fan or you're just a fan of the 90s. The only question I have for you guys is... Can you... Good? Have a good time, guys. Jeremy, see us out.
0: Yes, I can.
1: Thanks, guys. See you next time.
0: Take care. <laughs> Man, I.
1: Okay. The bathtub definitely fits to adult man. Sure. All right, so let's move into the actual characters then, shall we?
0: Um, I think we should do the story first. All right, here we go with the characters. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, just because I... Big um, deeper. Just throw me out in the trash. <laughs> Just throw me in the trash.
1: I think it's about fifteen minutes of goopity doop.
0: It, Sorry. <laughs> um,
1: as Jeremy had said, you're supposed to head to on the same on the same planet. You're head you're supposed to Okay. <laughs> it's like
0: it's like Macha Man. <laughs> it's enough to get me to the boiling point Yep. Oh. Most gods of fertility are pretty into that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm just getting really hot, I'm taking my shirt off. Had some losses, and she wanted to gather up- thanks, Reed.
1: (laughs) Oh god, sorry, I've been making noise for the last two minutes, haven't I? You're good.
0: (laughs) She's thick.
1: She thick.